Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross. Happy New Year to you. Each and every one of you has made this past year such a special one, and I want to thank you for tuning in every week. And I have a feeling that 2024 is going to be our best year yet. For today's episode, we have two mysterious cases. First up, the creepy Circleville letters. And our second mystery is the chilling disappearance of tech CEO Aaron Valenti. Different cases, but both include mysterious deaths. Before we get started, if you enjoy this podcast, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much in growing the show, and make sure to subscribe to the Avery After Dark YouTube channel. Linking that in the show notes, I post new videos on there every week. On Avery After Dark, you know I like to get right into it. So let's dive in, shall we? Imagine there was someone out there that knew everything about you. They watched your every move. You have no idea who they are, but they know you. They see where you go, who you talk to. They know your deepest, darkest secrets and threaten to expose them. Creeped out yet? This was a reality for residents of Circleville, Ohio in the late 1970s. An anonymous writer terrorized the town, sending hundreds of letters to residents, local businesses, and government offices. The Circleville writer claimed to know everything that happened in the small town. In these letters, the author threatened to reveal the recipient's darkest secrets if they didn't do as the letters demanded. This is without a doubt one of the creepiest mysteries of all time. Circleville, Ohio is a very typical, quiet, small Midwestern town sitting just 30 miles south of Columbus. Before this all began, the quaint town was known for its annual pumpkin show. It was the kind of place where neighbors knew each other by name. Citizens looked out for one another. But in March 1977, everything changed. Mysterious letters began arriving in residents' mailboxes. They were handwritten with big block handwriting. They contained personal information about the recipients. And the letters claimed that the recipient was being watched by the anonymous writer. It was a very creepy, I know you, but you don't know me type of situation. And the residents were made to feel like sitting ducks. This anonymous writer clearly already knew where they lived and was watching them. Residents began turning these letters into local police and word spread. The Circleville letters and who was behind them was this small town's newest mystery. But there was one woman who seemed to be a primary target. Her name was Mary Gillespie, a local school bus driver. One day, she walked out to her mailbox to find a strange letter addressed to her, postmarked Columbus, Ohio. The Circleville writer had been watching her closely. In the letter, the writer claimed to know that she was having an affair with the school superintendent, a man by the name of Gordon Massey. And the writer threatened her to stop this affair. The letter read, I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. This letter had no return address and also no clue or indication who sent it. And within a week, Mary received yet another threatening letter. 
again telling her to stop this affair or else. Mary chose to keep the letters to herself. That was until Mary's husband, Ron, received a letter as well. The anonymous writer told Ron Gillespie if he didn't do something to stop this affair, his life would be in danger. The letter read, Mr. Gillespie, your wife is seeing Gordon Massey. You should catch them together and kill them both. He doesn't deserve to live. So Ron immediately goes to his wife, Mary, with this, and she tells him that she had received two similar letters, but didn't say anything to him because it wasn't true. She said she wasn't having an affair and hoped whoever was sending these letters would just go away. A couple weeks passed and Ron received another letter, now with an even more threatening message. The Circleville writer was getting angrier. This next letter expressed frustration that Ron hadn't done anything with the information. The letter read, make her admit the truth and inform the school board. And if Ron didn't, the writer threatened to go public with the information, saying they would start making posters, signs, and billboards until the truth came out. So whoever was behind these letters was obsessed with Mary Gillespie and this alleged affair. The writer wanting this affair to be made public and for it to blow up. And the more Mary and Ron tried to ignore the situation, the more angry the writer was becoming. Things were escalating. So Mary and Ron made the decision to confide in a few family members about the letters. They told Ron's sister, Karen Sue, her husband, Paul Freshour, and Paul's sister. Together, the group discussed what they should do and also talked about who they think could be behind the letters. Then on August 19th, 1977, Ron was at home one evening when the phone rang. He picked up. Who was on the other end of that call remains a mystery, but what happened next changed the trajectory of this entire case. Things were about to go from creepy and disturbing to deadly. Moments after hanging up the phone, Ron stormed over, grabbed his 22 caliber revolver, and on the way out, told his daughters that he was going to confront the Circleville letter writer once and for all. His children said that he didn't seem intoxicated, more so angry and on a mission. Whoever was on the other end of that call and whatever was said, clearly Ron believed he now knew the identity of the secret writer. He jumped into his red and white pickup truck, a car that the Circleville writer referred to and even stated he or she was watching, and Ron drove off. And then, the strangest and most unexpected tragedy. Shortly after he left, Ron's truck slid off the road at a nearby intersection and slammed into a tree. Ron Gillespie died at the scene. Now, this intersection was not far from his house. Friends and family stated that this was an intersection he was very familiar with. Picture that intersection close to your house, the one you've driven through a thousand times. You know where every car is coming from. So it was very bizarre that Ron would crash in this particular area. Now, you may be saying, come on, the identity of the writer was about to be revealed and then Ron somehow mysteriously dies? That is very suspicious timing. What happened? Was he run off the road? There's gotta be more to this, right? Well, adding to the mystery, police determined that Ron's gun had been fired before his death. Between the time he left his house and slamming into that tree, one shot was fired from his gun. But police never determined why or who it was aimed at. The Circleville writer did state that if Ron Gillespie didn't come forward about his wife's affair, his life would be in danger. And now he was dead. This was all getting way too strange. And it was made even more baffling when the local coroner, as well as the county sheriff, Dwight Radcliffe, ruled Ron's death an accident. 
Many others weren't so convinced. Paul Freshour, Ron's brother-in-law, considered it to be murder. So looking at the circumstances leading up to Ron's death, how could this be considered accidental? Reports stated that Ron had a 0.16 blood alcohol level, which was one and a half times the legal limit. At that level, one would have blurred vision and loss of coordination. But strangely, Ron's family and friends stated that Ron wasn't a heavy drinker at all, and they were shocked by this. And as his daughter stated, before their dad left that night, they said he didn't seem drunk, just really angry. And after Ron's death, the letters continued pouring in all over town. Some of these letters even alleged that County Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe was perpetrating a cover-up in Ron's death. The letters continued to target Mary Gillespie, who was now a widow, and Gordon Massey, the school superintendent. The letters were always taunting, the writer becoming more calculating and devious over time. Eventually, years passed, and Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey confirmed their relationship, but said it only began after the letters started. Now, this was really the basis of the letters, wanting them to go public with their affair. So once they came forward, would the creepy letters stop? No. Strangely, this only fueled the fire. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. It had been over five years since the letters first arrived, but the Circleville writer was still on a mission to take Mary down. You really have to think about how helpless you would feel in this situation. Because what options do you even have? You couldn't move because surely this writer's gonna find out where you're moving and just follow you there. You would really feel so trapped. And the anonymous writer began putting up salacious signs all over town, specifically along Mary's bus route. One day in February 1983, Mary was driving the bus on the way to school one morning when she spotted a handmade sign on a nearby fence targeting her teen daughter. Mary was used to finding these signs along the road, but this one made her really upset. Mary got off the bus, walked over, and attempted to yank down the sign but she found that it was attached to a string and to a box. So she pulls down the entire thing and takes it onto the bus to see what's in the box. Mary opens it up and finds a small pistol inside. This was a poorly rigged booby trap designed for the gun to fire at Mary. So she turns this over to police and they believe this would give them the evidence they needed to solve this case and find the writer once and for all. Investigators see there had been an attempt to rub the serial number off the gun, but the lab was still able to pull the number off of it. And then this case was flipped on its head. Investigators found that the gun belonged to someone very close to Mary. Records indicated it belonged to Paul Freshour, who was married to Ron's sister, Karen Sue. Paul's wife, Karen Sue, was questioned by police, and she told them that her husband was the Circleville writer. He was behind it all, now, the couple was in the midst of a very messy divorce, and she said she had evidence. She had discovered the letters hidden in their house. Paul, on the other hand, denied writing the letters and said that his gun had to have been stolen. He showed investigators where he had kept it in the garage and said he didn't even remember noticing it was missing as he had no reason to check up on it. Paul took a polygraph test and investigators say that he failed. And at the station, police wanted to get a handwriting sample from Paul. And they asked him to actually copy one of the Circleville letters word for word. Experts later said that this was a very improper way to test, as when you're asked to copy material, 
your handwriting will naturally mimic the style of what you're asked to copy. But for police, they felt they had their man. Paul Freshour was arrested for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie and went to trial. During this, Mary took the stand and said that she never initially suspected Paul, but said that in 1982, Karen Sue had come to her and told her that she believed Paul could be behind the letters. During the trial, Paul said that he had a solid alibi for the day of the attempted murder, but chose not to take the stand in his own defense. In the end, Paul was convicted. He received the maximum sentence, seven to 25 years. Paul said he was shocked by the conviction and said that he was not the Circleville writer. Now, after this, you would think, with the alleged letter writer behind bars, the letters would stop, right? But they didn't. After Paul's conviction, hundreds of letters continued arriving all over town. And at the prison, all of Paul's mail was examined, tested. Paul would have regular searches. In his cell, he had no pencils, no paper. His visits were monitored so there was no dictating messages to anyone else. And the prison warden came forward stating there was no possible way that Paul could have sent the letters. Additionally, all of the letters were postmarked Columbus, and Paul was imprisoned in Lima, Ohio, 200 miles away. Paul was even put into solitary confinement, and yet the letters continued. You would think this would cause officials to take a second look at this, and say, hey, maybe we made a mistake here. We should look into this, but they didn't. So who else could be behind the letters? Paul's lawyer asked the jury during his trial, who hates Paul enough to get him into trouble? Who stands to profit financially from the divorce if Paul goes to prison? His attorneys pointed at Karen Sue, Paul's ex-wife. During that divorce battle, Karen Sue lost her home, custody of their daughters and was living in a trailer on Mary Gillespie's property. And get this, one witness, another bus driver, claimed that she was driving down that same road that Mary found that booby-trapped sign that day, just about 20 minutes before Mary found the sign. And she said as she was driving along, she saw a man alongside a yellow El Camino parked in the same area the sign was found. She said the man was large in stature with sandy hair. This bus driver said that when this unidentified man saw her driving past, he quickly tried to look like he was going to the bathroom or something, clearly trying to hide his face. Now, this description did not match Paul Freshour. Paul always said that he had a solid alibi that day. He was not anywhere near that road. Paul was also not large in size and had really dark hair. And also, he didn't drive an El Camino. So, who was this man? Many felt that Karen Sue's new boyfriend matched that description. It was also reported that Karen Sue's brother drove an El Camino. And Paul's attorneys came forward with the idea that Karen Sue and her boyfriend set Paul up that day. Now, here's some devastating news. That tip was never investigated. After serving seven years, Paul Freshour was up for parole, and he was excited at the thought that he could be released. He was a model prisoner. But at the same time, the Circleville letters increased the writer clearly knowing Paul could be getting out soon. And the letters poured in all over town, still postmarked from Columbus, Ohio. And these letters sabotaged Paul. He was denied parole. Paul even received a letter from the Circleville writer himself while he was in prison. The taunting letter read, when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there? I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. 
No one. The joke is on you. Ha, ha. Years passed, and in December 1993, Unsolved Mysteries came to Circleville to investigate, as they had received a letter as well. It read, Forget Circleville, Ohio. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. Signed, the Circleville writer. Paul pled with Unsolved Mysteries to take a look at the case, always maintaining that he was innocent. Finally, in 1994, Paul was released from prison on parole. And strangely after that, the letters mysteriously stopped. So the question remains, decades later, who was the Circleville writer? Paul Freshour died in 2012 at age 70. He went to his grave maintaining that he was innocent. He wasn't the Circleville writer. And not only that, he consistently pled for someone, anyone, to take a second look at the letters and find out who was really behind them. Paul said he wanted to find out what happened to Ron Gillespie that night after he drove out to confront the writer and ended up dead. One forensic exam did recently find similarities between Paul's handwriting and the anonymous letters. But other experts have looked at the case and stated they don't believe Paul's handwriting was a match. One former FBI profiler named Mary Ellen O'Toole said that whoever the Circleville writer is, they're flying under the radar. This person comes across as very normal and no one would suspect them. She also said that in regards to gender, she believed there's a good possibility that the writer was female, not male. So if you've been watching and listening to this saying, this sounds like the work of a woman, just like I have, you're not alone. She believes this because the letter writer wrote that they were the boyfriend of a woman in one of the letters, clearly wanting people to believe they were male. O'Toole also made a very interesting connection as she studied the letters saying that she felt that the writer was not a highly educated person because of how the sentences were structured and the wording. And notably, Paul Freshour had a job as a manager at Anheuser-Busch and also had a master's degree. O'Toole also said that the writer seemed to enjoy these letters. This person liked being a bully, intimidating people. And those who knew Paul said that he was a nice guy, he was never bitter, never angry. O'Toole said that she couldn't rule Paul out, but said she had doubts that he was the writer. And once again, I'm asking, how could Paul Freshour write hundreds of letters from prison and somehow manage to get all of these letters postmarked 200 miles away? That doesn't make any sense to me. I just can't get over that logically. It doesn't add up. It's been decades and the true identity of the writer has never been proven. Everyone seems to have their own opinion on the mystery, but the sheriff's office closed the case. So this is one mystery that may stay just that. But I gotta know, what are your thoughts on this case? What does your inner detective tell you? Drop your theories in the comments. I always love getting your take. We'll be right back. Now for our second case. A tech CEO's trip to California takes a bizarre turn and ends in a shocking discovery. To say that Erin Valenti was accomplished would be an understatement. She was a high achiever, graduating with honors from Georgetown University. She landed a job as a venture capitalist where she headed a fund of $20 billion. She and her husband, Harrison Weinstein, lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, and founded Tinker Ventures, a software app company. 
Aaron was the CEO. Things were going extremely well for 33-year-old Aaron, and by all accounts, she was really happy. Business, personal life, all on track. Her nickname was Armageddon Aaron. She was very much a go-getter, a force to be reckoned with. Specifically, friends spoke of how well Aaron did under pressure, in high-stakes situations. Colleagues said that Aaron thrived when many would crumble. On October 1st, 2019, Aaron set out for a trip from Salt Lake to Orange County. She was set to attend a business seminar called Create Powerful, designed for business owners. It was held near Laguna Beach. Associates said they saw Aaron there mingling with guests at a sunset dinner, in good spirits. During the trip, she spoke with family and expressed excitement about some new ideas for the company, and also said she was very much looking forward to coming home. That weekend, Erin stayed in California, meeting with friends and former Silicon Valley colleagues for dinners and brunches. But on the evening of October 7th, the night she was set to fly home, things took a really bizarre turn. That evening, Erin called her mom and told her she was leaving Palo Alto after meeting up with a former colleague. She said she was planning on heading to the airport. But then, bizarrely, Erin, wandering around outside, said she couldn't find her rental car. On the phone, she told her mom not to worry. She thought she parked her car around the corner and assured her that she would find it soon. Her parents, who were actually celebrating their wedding anniversary and were out to dinner, called her back a few minutes later to ask if she had found her rental car. And from here, things get stranger and stranger. They said Erin answered the phone, but wasn't making a lot of sense. She said she had located her rental car, but then started to become increasingly agitated and began mumbling incoherently. Erin then insisted that she just refueled the car, but it was out of gas. At this point, Erin's mom was growing really concerned for her daughter. This behavior was very unlike Erin, so she reaches out to Erin's husband for help. The two of them then begin a series of chilling exchanges with Erin over the next couple hours, hoping they could calm her down. But as the night rolled on, Erin sounded more and more agitated and erratic during these calls. She was talking extremely fast. During one of these conversations, Erin muttered, it's all a game. It's a thought experiment. We're in the matrix. And then Aaron hung up the phone. After those final words, Aaron's family could no longer reach her, and Aaron never made her flight back to Utah, and her phone was off. Aaron's family reaches out to San Jose police, telling them about the situation and how worried they were for Aaron. They wanted to file a missing persons report, but police are wary at first. Aaron's family provided police with the make and model of her rental car, her name, her number, everything they have. Days later, after no sign of Aaron, police take a missing persons report, but mark her as voluntarily missing, which means they're not gonna go out and search for her. Over the next few days, Aaron and her rental car were not turning up anywhere. All of Aaron's family and her husband flew out, and they were looking for Aaron themselves. They reached out to her cell phone company, Verizon, asking if they could pick up on anything. Now, typically, phone companies won't give out any information on a private account, except if it's court-ordered. But in this case, they did. They also find that there has been no activity on Aaron's cards for days which is a bad sign. Aaron's family takes to social media and their efforts to find her, starting a Facebook group. But it wasn't until five days later on October 12th, a passerby sees a car matching the description and calls it in. They finally found Aaron. She was discovered on a residential street in San Jose, deceased in the backseat of her car. 
This was only three blocks away from her last known location. It was strange that it took five days to find Erin as she and her car were out in the middle of a suburb. How did no one notice the car or Erin in the back seat for five days? When checking, the scene didn't suggest any type of attack. There was no sign of anything out of the ordinary. Many believed that an autopsy would shed light on what happened, but it really didn't. Through an investigation, the cause of Aaron's death was determined to be due to natural causes following an acute manic episode. This autopsy report has never been released publicly. I personally have never heard of anyone dying from an acute manic episode. Acute mania is the manic phase of bipolar 1 disorder. It's defined as an extremely unstable euphoric or irritable mood, along with an excess activity or energy level, excessively rapid thought and speech, reckless behavior, and feeling of invincibility, which did track with Aaron's behavior that night, very unstable, irritable mood, talking rapidly. But again, no one dies from this. This only added to the confusion as Aaron's family maintained that she had no history of any mental health issues. Aaron was young, 33 years old. She seemed to be in excellent physical condition. She regularly hiked and skied. She also had no history with substance abuse either. The only thing Aaron's family mentioned was that she did take a medication for a thyroid issue, but that was it. Many looking at this case instantly think, could her behavior that night, the strange events of her final hours, be the result of someone slipping her something? Well, her toxicology report came back clean as well. She didn't have drugs in her system. This case is one big mystery. Theories about what really happened to her have circulated since her mysterious death. Some looked at the convention that she was at that week and many said it was rather intense. Maybe she suffered some sort of break due to the stress of it all. There's also been a question if perhaps the toxicology report didn't test for all drugs, perhaps missed something. There's also a million and one theories surrounding her final words about being in the matrix which is very creepy, those final words from her. But to this day, what happened to Aaron in those final hours remains a haunting mystery, and Aaron's family have been left with no answers. This really is such a chilling case because here you have a woman at the height of her career in her life. How this highly motivated, smart, successful young woman passed away in such a strange and mysterious way is baffling, and I pray for Aaron's family and friends. I gotta know, what are your thoughts on this case? Leave them in the comments. I always appreciate getting your take. And please let me know what cases you'd like to see next on the show. Next episode, I have even more mystery coming your way. Until then, I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark.